The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Higher education is and has been at a crisis point in terms of the decline of quality academic instruction. The curriculum has been diluted. And generally speaking, the faculty today have less expertise than their predecessors. Now, with COVID's acceleration of the quote-unquote disruption agenda, institutions of higher education or post-secondary institutions are becoming truly predatory. The anchor institution model is one that will benefit oligarchs and tech investors to the detriment of students, communities, and even our constitutional system. If young people and their parents understood the vast difference between university education today and what it was like 20 years ago, I think many would decide against university education altogether. But the demolition of our economic systems under the pretext of the COVID pandemic will likely have the opposite effect. More students will be flocking to these predatory institutions in order to get some micro-credential that they believe mistakenly will distinguish them from the masses of other job seekers across the globe. Tonight's special guest was teaching at the University of Tulsa when a dramatic restructure was announced. And that was what catalyzed her research into the structural crisis of higher education, its relationship to the fourth industrial revolution, and how universities are being transformed into vehicles for impact ESG investing. For those who don't know, ESG means environmental, social, and corporate governance. The three central factors in measuring the sustainability and societal impact of an investment in a company or business. What she learned about higher education was a gateway to understanding the parallel shifts in basic education and in other social service sectors, such as healthcare, mental health, urban planning and workforce development, criminal justice reform, and policing. About six months into her research, she discovered how social impact finance and pay-for-success contracts factor into the globalist disruption agenda. This is probably one of the most important and least discussed features of the fourth industrial revolution. It's the financial mechanism by which corporate investors will move capital to generate profits in an economy that's been demolished and has left most people dependent on universal basic income. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Julianne Romanello earned her doctorate in political philosophy from Baylor University in Waco, Texas in 2012. While a Baylor 
Ms. Ramanella earned the Richard D. Hoff Distinguished Graduate Student in Political Science Award and passed PhD comprehensive examinations with distinction. She is the author of many publications and is a wife and a mother of four children. Dr. Julianne Romanello joins us from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hello, Dr. Romanella. Welcome to Veritas. And directly from Tulsa, Oklahoma, I'd like to welcome Dr. Julianne Romanello to Veritas. Hello, how are you? Thank you for having me. My pleasure. May I call you Julian? Yes, please do. I Thank you for being brave. I saw a few of your videos recently. Let's start with your story. How did you wake up to this reality? Okay, well, I had a concrete event happen. Um, in 2019, I was teaching in the honors program at the University of Tulsa. Um, it's a great books program. And TU, as we call it, um, it is my, it, it's actually my undergraduate alma mater. And so it was really a dream job that I had to teach in the honors program at, at my undergraduate institution. And, you know, I was, I was really absorbed in my students and I was a bit on the periphery because I was a visiting professor. Um, but the whole year I was there, you could just see and feel the tension in the place. And that tension really came to a head in April when all of the faculty, this is April of 2019, when all of the faculty were summoned to a meeting in a, a large auditorium. Um, I'm trying to think, I can't really remember how many hundreds of, of faculty members were present, but it was standing room only in the Lurton Performing Arts Center. And at this meeting, no one knew what was going to be discussed. They had an idea about that it would involve the strategic plan of the university. But um, the way that this true commitment plan was, was presented to us was just astounding to me. I mean, it was a total transformation of the university. It was a shift to um, basically a workforce preparation model rather than a rigorous liberal arts and, you know, um, natural sciences education that the university had always um, been known for. And so I, we were all in shock. And the language that they used was very striking to me. It was technical. It was cold. It was steely. And I just, I, I, maybe this sounds cheesy, but I had a gut feeling that this was really a sinister plan. And so I started to dig and, you know, I looked at some of the philanthropic um, partnerships that the university had had and partnerships with the business community. And it was from there that I just went way down the rabbit hole. <laughs> How has this not brought the hammer, the proverbial hammer, to you? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, they were going to, it had been discussed in that my contract would not be renewed um, after the year. So, it, and that was, bef I mean, I knew about that before the, the plan was rolled out. 
and my director, the director of the honors program, who's a dear friend and a lovely individual. She really fought hard to keep my position because the honors program generated revenue for the university. So um, I think she had figured that my salary, uh, the the cost for my salary and benefits actually netted the university like nine tuition paying students. Uh, whereas if we didn't have the honors program, they would have selected other institutions. So it was a really strange deal, but I knew that I was not going to come back. And I think that, you know, that, that maybe had, has had something to do with the fact that I haven't been, I don't know, subjected to a lawsuit or anything like this. You know, I'm, I'm no longer teaching at the university, but I think, I think probably, you know, I am a mom of four and I started, uh, you know, I try to keep my social media, um, you know, pretty factual, pretty positive. I don't, you know, I don't take a partisan stance and sort of calling out the key players. And, and I don't know, I think, I figured out the social finance aspect of it. And really, I think that people are afraid to come after me because then it would bring it to light. <laughs> you know, there would just be more publicity and, and then more people would figure out what's going on with social impact finance and the corporate takeover of the academy. When did you become a researcher into techno fascism? Was it before this event or after? <laughs> No, it was before, or it was after, I'm sorry, before this event, I was completely naive. So, um, you know, I was one of those annoying people who would sort of, you know, if someone said, well, big pharma is really trying to, you know, to poison people, I would say, come on, that, that kind of thing doesn't happen. I just can't imagine that possibly happening. That, that was me. Um, you know, and that was sort of just this naive trust in the goodness of people. It wasn't any, you know, allegiance to big pharma or anything like that, but, um, it was having that, that concrete event happen and, and watching how brutal it was you know, to, to the faculty who are involved, to the students, to the community. Um, I just, I just knew that there was something up and, you know, my academic research is in, um, well, it's, (laughs) how do I say it succinctly? I studied ideology and the existential causes of ideology. So I think I had been prepared to see what was happening and I've always been a curious person. Um, but really I was too sort of busy with old books and children to pay much attention to what we might call conspiracy theory. When most curriculum is written and administered, you probably know this by now, (laughs) by a few key players, they're going to remain nameless, and I'm sure you know who they are. You are supposed to read from the script, and if anyone deviates, then this could turn into losing tenure, funding, grants. Did you identify this well within the belly of the beast? You know, I 
I really had not noticed that so much because, you know, I had been teaching as an adjunct. Um, like I said, I have four young kids. My oldest is nine and a half and my youngest is two and a half. So I've been teaching as an adjunct at several institutions and, and, you know, I would teach a full load, you know, sometimes five courses a semester, but when you're an adjunct, you're a little bit out of the loop on things. And then, you know, when I had moved into a full-time teaching position, I was, you know, really concentrating on getting that first prep ready. And, you know, I love teaching and I love reading. So I wasn't paying a lot of attention to what was going on at, say, faculty meetings or departmental meetings. Now, a lot of my, I have, I had colleagues at the university who were friends and they would, they would talk about this kind of thing. But, you know, these were professors in the honors program and then in the philosophy department. And, you know, TU was, was unique actually in having a very rigorous and I would say very balanced, uh, philosophy program. And it had been like that with, um, with the political science department for a while too, which is, is very rare in the academy. So, so you, you know, the people that I was around were doing quality work that wasn't from a script, but, and I, and I just tried not to sort of bother with people who were doing otherwise because they weren't, you know, it didn't affect me and I didn't know them well enough or have a professional relationship that was, that would have, made it appropriate for me to breach that subject with them. But now as I have, you know, really dug into the, the tentacles of the corporate world and, and how it has infiltrated the academy. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. There are hiring strategies in place that, that promote a certain script. Um, I was just looking at the American Council on Education's website, and their script is all about internationalization and creating 21st century global citizens. And yeah, if, you know, they say on their website, and we have here in Oklahoma, uh, you know, our uh, state plan for public institutions um, it supports this model where you know you're not hired unless you have demonstrated a commitment and that's a buzzword um, a commitment to these goals that you know pretty much align with the UN sustainable development goals you're not going to get hired uh, and if you somehow slip through the cracks, then you are certainly not going to get tenure. I've been discussing Marxist, techno-fascist <laughs> dictatorships for quite a while, but you distilled it even more to techno-fascism. I like that. Our listeners are very well versed about this, but for those who might not know what we're saying, can you define techno-fascism? Yeah, I would say that the the way I have used it, it is you know, the melding of corporate, like private corporate and governmental power and brought to bear on citizens, on people, 
um, through a steely and unreasonable, like as in you can't reason with it, um, technological uh, apparatus. So artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, um, smart contracts, you know, it's the sensors and connectivity of of all things that are reported back to this uh, corporate governmental machine in order to control our lives. I remember years ago, I interviewed a fine lady with the name of Charlotte Thompson Iserby about yeah. the, do you know who she is? The deliberate dumbing down of, I call it the world, not only America, the world. Do you know of her work? Well, you know, I, she is on my list of people to read um, because I've bumped into her name a couple of times. And so I have not spent time reading her work, but she is on the list for sure. When she says the deliberate dumbing down, I, I yes. say the world, she says America. Do you think the United Nations have their fingerprints in all of this? Yes. Now, I think I think the United Nations is a tool of um, of the bankers, <laughs> you know. Uh, but yes, the United Nations definitely has a hand in this. Um, I think to add legitimacy to the appearance of the thing, you know, if if you didn't have some kind of a of a governmental body that looked like it was promoting some kind of common good i don't think people would buy this stuff so so the so the un to me seems like um like a a cover or a sort of global kindness washing but yes i think that they're definitely trying to you know, dumbed down Americans in particular, really, because Americans have been advantaged materially and in terms of our freedoms um, to speak our minds. We're, we're going to have to be taken down several notches. So while it certainly, you know, it is a process that's going to apply to the world, um, I think we're going to feel it the most here and it's going to be the strongest here. And they, you know, they do that under this wonderful term of equity, you know, which sounds to people who hear it, they think, yes, equality and, you know, fairness, but they don't understand that equity is actually about making sure that everyone has the exact same thing as everyone else. It's all tracked and traced and it's all perfectly uh, suited to the functioning of this global machine. Interesting. And when I was discussing all of this with her, she mentioned and she provided a, a copy of a test. I believe it was from the late 1800s or early 1900s. You probably know but what I'm about to say. But it was a third grade school test, which is the equivalent right now of about a junior in college. So obviously... Wow. A hundred years, the dumbing down has been prevalent, but I think it's coming to a crescendo now to the point that maybe in the next 10, 20 years, cursive may resemble an ancient lost language to many. Yes, I think so. I think 
the reason why. As Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.